Good evening and welcome to Campus Voices. This is the place where we discuss issues that affect both the UK campus and surrounding Lexington area. I'm your host, Muhammad Ahmad, and today we'll be discussing free speech on college campuses. Free speech has had a continuous presence on campuses for many years, but recently, changes in the social climate have seen administrations move to protect those students who feel uncomfortable around certain forms of speech. But in doing this, universities have perhaps inadvertently restricted the free speech rights of other students. WRFL's Zach Epperson introduces today's topic. Since the founding of the United States, the freedom of speech has been one of the most heavily guarded liberties the American public enjoys. According to a 2017 Gallup poll, 56% of college students believe that protecting free speech rights is important to democracy. But in recent years, students on both sides of the political aisle have engaged in sometimes heated debates about what kind of speech should and should not be allowed on their campuses. That sentiment concerning diversity and inclusion has resulted in now common items such as speech codes and free speech zones on college campuses, which critics say stifle the open exchange of viewpoints on campuses. For WRFL, I'm Zach Epperson. With that in mind tonight, we'll be discussing the history of, of free speech on college campuses, the different views that students share when it comes to the expression of free and sometimes inflammatory speech, and how officials here at UK are protecting the interests of both sides. Our guest today to help break this all down is UK professor Brian Fry. Professor Fry is a Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the UK College of Law. He's taught there since 2012. Professor Fry graduated with a BA from UC Berkeley a Master of Fine Arts from the University of San Francisco, and a Juris Doctor degree from New York University School of Law. Additionally, he also hosts his own show here on WRFL. We'd like to thank Professor Fry for taking the time to speak with us today. So, Professor Fry, just to start, you were an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley, which is considered the birthplace of uh, college free speech dating back to the 60s. You went to school in the 90s, and with that said, what was the climate surrounding free speech like then, and how is it different from now? You know, that's an interesting question, Muhammad, especially because I think that a lot of the questions that people were asking about speech regulation, and in particular speech regulation on campus, were very much in the air in the 1990s, and I, in a lot of ways, think that the kinds of conversations that we're having now are, are kind of uh, revisiting some of the same kinds of conflicts and problems that people were sort of identifying and discussing back back in the 90s, right? And I, and I think it's important and interesting that you know the role that Berkeley and other college campuses played around kind of developing concepts of, of free speech and free speech on college campuses in the 60s because we've become so used to the modern concept of free speech protection and um, extensive limits on the government's ability to regulate people's uh, engagement in speech activities. But they're actually a, re it's a relatively new constitutional development, right? I mean, it wasn't until really the 1950s and 1960s that the kinds of speech protections that we kind of take for granted today actually developed, right? So, you know, this kind of robust speech protection that we're used to is actually relatively new. Now, you said this is something new that dates back to the 50s and the 60s. How much do you contribute that to movements like perhaps the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and things that were, you know, of importance of that time? I, I think that all of those movements were intimately bound up with each other. Uh, I do think that the development of free speech doctrine was part of a broader 
development in the scope of individual constitution, the constitutional protection of individual rights, spearheaded by the Warren Court and in particular by by Justice Brennan, right? So you know you can see this increase in sort of constitutional protection of speech, but it's also reflected in increasing protection under the various criminal law amendments, like the protection against the rights against search and seizure, the protection of the right to remain silent, the protections afforded by criminal and and civil juries, uh, protections uh, relating to Eighth Amendment rights against cruel and unusual punishment. And so across the board, during that period of time, we saw a expansion of constitutional protection of various individual rights in in ways and across a spectrum that had not uh, been protected to the same degree in previous years, right? So the pre-World War II court and the sort of early 19 or late 1940s, early 1950s court was much more deferential to government decision-making. And we had a kind of, often it's referred to as like a Therian type position uh, reflected in justices like Justice Frankfurter, Right, who tended to defer to government decisions and saw the rules of the court of the court not to be pushing back against legislative wisdom. And in the nineteen like late nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, there was an increase in the sort of vigorousness with which the Supreme Court was approaching its uh, institutional obligation or perceived institutional obligation to police individual rights, in particular individual rights as enumerated in the Bill of Rights but also rights to privacy, right, which were sort of seen as offering additionally, uh, additional and more expansive protections against government interference and, you know, are reflected in things like the right to an abortion or the right to use contraception and so on and so forth. Now, we just heard Professor Fry break down the history of this idea of free speech. And now that we've introduced that and prefaced the topic, WRFL's Braden Ramsey takes a closer look at the current ongoing free speech debate among students. According to Vice President of Institutional Diversity, Dr. Sanja Feast-Price, the University of Kentucky has become a more diverse community in recent years. I can see more diversity, uh, particularly racial ethnic diversity. I'm also recognizing more uh, diversity among our um, students with uh, differences with sexual identity and sexual orientation. This brings many different voices together, all of which aspire to be heard in some capacity. Whether it be regarding politics, oppression, or culture, people who exercise their rights are steadfast in their pursuit of what they believe is a just cause. But some students believe that not all forms of speech should be expressed, as a 2017 Gallup poll suggests. The same poll found that 61% of students believe the current social climate prevents some students from speaking out and voicing their opinions. Free speech zones used to exist for this reason, but they no longer exist on many campuses, including UK, due to various legal concerns. Despite this, the Gallup poll suggests students overwhelmingly support free speech zones. For WRFL, I'm Braden Ramsey. All right, so Professor Fry, we heard Dr. Price touch on what kind of diversity she's seen, but I want to ask you, what kinds of student diversity have you personally seen on campus in recent years? 
Uh, well, I've been teaching at UK for about eight years, and it's clearly a very diverse campus. And I think the administration, uh, certainly at the law school and at the campus, uh, on at the university more generally, is committed to you know developing and encouraging uh, diversity both of the people who are attending and teaching at the university, but also diversity in the ideas and perspectives that that people express. So I, I certainly think that that's a value we, we all share. And, um, and I think that the university has been doing a good job in promoting it. And we, as we talk about the university and the idea of free speech zones, how do you believe that, you know, university restrictions on unpopular forms of speech could potentially affect the learning environment for students? Right. Well, you know, speech can always be awkward, especially speech about controversial matters. And, you know, when people feel strongly about things, then, you know, sometimes tensions can run high. I do wonder whether the increasing uh, sort of move to expression in uh through social media and other kinds of kind of non face to face types type of interactions might make things like free speech zones a little bit less salient to some students who want to express a controversial viewpoint. Um, but then again, you know, there are many circumstances in which students want to engage in a sort of public and 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 in-person sort of expression of their ideas and you know some people want the kind of confrontation that comes along with that and you know i think the, the core thing is to ensure that people have the ability to uh express themselves and speak their minds but you know encourage them to do so in a reflect in a respectful and reflectful and um and thoughtful way so with that said from a legal perspective are free speech zones unconstitutional well, it's above my pay grade, really. Um, I, you know, until the Supreme Court uh, has a opinion directly touching the issue, uh, I hesitate to speculate. Uh, but I would say that given the trajectory of Supreme Court jurisprudence on First Amendment related questions, uh, that I think there's a non-trivial chance that the current lineup of the court would be likely to say that free speech zones in the sense of a institution telling students where they are and are not allowed to engage in protected, especially protected political speech, and uh, especially if it happens to be on a, a kind of a viewpoint-based sort of uh, basis, um, I, I think is, would very likely to be found unconstitutional by, by the court, uh, for better or for worse, right? Um, and I think that's especially true when it comes to a public institution like the University of Kentucky, Right? So the fact that the University of Kentucky is an arm of the state of Kentucky means that the free speech and First Amendment related uh, concerns about the university uh, governing or regulating speech of anyone, including its students, are you know much much more problematic than it is when it comes to a private institution where it's not speaking on behalf of the state government. So you know, I mean, if 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 free speech zones. <laughs> Which are always struck me as a bit of a, um, you know, an odd Orwellian sort of phrase. It's like, you know, it's a free speech zone because it's the only place you're allowed to engage in free speech. That seems very strange to me. But, um, but regardless, uh, I, I think if if the Supreme Court is going to find them unconstitutional anywhere, it's likely to be when it comes to institutions like state universities. 
And, you know, you teach a media law class for undergraduate students at UK, and you've talked about the First Amendment. I'm sure that's a central part of your class. And, you know, with your interactions with students, what has been the consensus among, you know, among them when it comes to the idea of freedom of speech? Well, you know, honestly, I haven't really polled my students directly on their thoughts on free speech. My, my sense is that most people have internalized free speech values to the extent that they oftentimes don't even think of certain kinds of expression as being relevant to, to free speech. They sort of take it for granted that the government isn't allowed to tell people what they can and can't say or, you know, how they're allowed to express themselves. That said, I think there are, are certain areas where people are especially um, uncomfortable about certain kinds of speech and in ways that they may not necessarily articulate in First Amendment-based terms, right? So, I mean, I think that there are there's a certain... There are certain contexts in which students perhaps feel that some people are entitled to have uh, and express opinions about certain things, and other people maybe ought to be more circumspect and mind their own business. Um, you know, and those kinds of should questions, I think, are perfectly consistent with the idea that you know the fr the First Amendment uh, protects the freedom of speech of students uh, and everyone else. Right? The free speech is a right to be free from government regulation. It's not a right to be free from third parties telling you that what you're saying is inappropriate or wrong or that you should refrain from saying it. That's a form of free speech too. Right, telling someone I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm not interested in what you're saying. I think you're wrong, and I think you should, you know, watch your mouth. Well, that that's also free speech. Free speech on campuses is not limited to just students themselves. It can also extend the speakers they invite. But some of those speakers have been criticized or even disinvited from campuses following protests from student groups with opposing viewpoints. WRFL's Braden Ramsey examines the ongoing relationship between controversial speakers, student organizations, and college administrations. Part of the college experience is having guest speakers on campus for lectures and workshops. With the previously mentioned variety of opinions and cultures present on campuses, there are often guests who draw the ire of a particular group. The most infamous of these involve political personalities. UK is no stranger to this, as the university hosted political commentator Trevor Noah earlier this year. On the right end of the spectrum, political commentator Ben Shapiro frequently makes appearances on campuses across the country. A polarizing figure, his appearances almost always spark controversy between students. In 2016, he was shouted down by nearly 20 students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is scheduled to speak at Boston University and Stanford University in November of this year, where student organizations have already started very animated discussion over the potential event. Dr. Price says that a university setting is meant for an exchange of ideas, no matter the differing of opinions. We never silence speakers. We never make decisions about who should and who should not come to this university. We never try and shut people down or shut them up because we recognize that the, the genesis, the basis of an ac academic institution is inquiry. At BU, Shapiro's appearance could bring over $12,000 in extra security measures. Some may think that the added protection would be unnecessary, but according to a 2017 Gallup poll, 10% of students say violence to prevent someone from speaking is acceptable sometimes. The same poll said that 37% of students believe shouting down speakers is somewhat acceptable. For WRFL, I'm Braden Ramsey.
So, Professor Fry, when student organizations invite speakers that might be deemed controversial, what options can administrations take to limit or restrict these uh, said speakers? Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it, it, it bears repeating, right, that protesting somebody coming to speech, even, I would argue, shutting someone down who has come to speech, uh, has come to speak, is also a form of free speech, uh, for better or for worse. Um, that said, uh, I think it would be preferable if people who object to certain speakers were to go to the person inviting that speaker in advance of the event and help that person or those people understand why it is that they object to those speakers and encourage them not to invite that person and perhaps to invite someone else. I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable, for example, to say to an or a student organization, you know, Ben Shapiro is not a very sophisticated person, right? He's kind of an idiot. So rather than invite someone controversial and inflammatory like Ben Shapiro, who doesn't really deserve to be speaking on cam campus, uh, college campuses in the first place because he's just not interesting, right? Why don't you invite someone who's smart and thoughtful and can add a productive voice to this conversation instead? Right. And I think that that's a perfectly sensible and reasonable thing to do. Right. To encourage the people making the invitation to disinvite someone. I, I mean, I would urge people considering protesting a speaker to reflect on the fact that if your only argument is shut up. Right. That that's not likely to be very compelling to people who came to her, hear that speaker. And you may actually be doing your own cause a bit of a disservice. Right. So rather than go shut some down, why not invite a different speaker and encourage people to hear your speaker instead or just don't attend the event. Right. I mean, just because you don't happen to like something or want to don't want to hear it doesn't mean that other people shouldn't have the right and the opportunity to hear the person speak if they want to. Going back to Trevor Noah, when his appearance was announced here at UK, I recall that you know it was encouraged that faculty and teaching staff highlight the event. How common is it for teachers to be asked to highlight a speaker, just from your perspective and experience? Well, I, I can only speak to the law school because that's the only place where I have real firsthand experience. Right. And I can say that when we've had prominent speakers, the administration certainly encourages us to let the students know and remind them, right? So frequently we've had, for example, Supreme Court justices come to speak at UK, and we've certainly highlighted those events. We've also had some political figures come to speak at the university, and I would certainly mention that as well. I mean, I think that, you know, all of these government officials are, you know, important figures, and it's good for students to have an opportunity to hear them speak in, in person, you know, and it's exciting to have a celebrity like uh, Trevor Noah come and speak, right? I mean, it's not so often that you get to see people like that. So, you know, if that were something that were happening through the law school, I would certainly uh, encourage my student to go. And, and I recall that there was some discussion at the law school as well. I think an email went out or something letting students know that this was an opportunity available to them. So, I mean, I, I strongly encourage students to attend, attend events from extracurricular speakers and would note that those happen all the time, right? Some of them are slightly lower profile, but they can also be exciting and cool events to go to, including, you know, dare I say it, faculty speakers and so on also have interesting ideas and their events are often less well attended than those of uh, celebrities. So if you really want to make someone's day, why not go hear a faculty speaker talk about their scholarship? 
Fair enough. And so going off of speakers, they're sometimes disinvited from campuses due to policies that college administrations have in place regarding free speech. These and other related policies on campuses have drawn criticism from First Amendment advocates. WRFL's Zach Epperson outlines some of those policies. Dr. Price explained that as a student herself, the opportunity to be included in campus culture was not as accessible. So as an African-American student, a student of color, I experienced a lot of discrimination, not only from my peers, but from instructors. But during that time, the attitude was just grin and bear, keep your head down and just do what you have to do, ignore, you know, just tolerate, endure, and remember the end goal. That's why some administrations have taken steps to ensure that historically marginalized groups of students are welcomed into a more inclusive environment. As a result, Colleges such as the University of Kentucky have adopted what are commonly referred to as speech codes, policies that attempt to restrict forms of speech that some might find offensive. But critics and First Amendment advocates deride these policies as forms of censorship on campuses, citing that even hate speech is protected under the Constitution. For WRFL, I'm Zach Epperson. So going off of what we just heard, do you believe that the protection of students supersedes the right of other students' free speech, based on what we've heard? Right. Well, I mean, again, my personal beliefs are sort of irrelevant, but I can say that when it comes to the First Amendment, there really is no such thing as a constitutional category known as hate speech, right? That's a that's a colloquial category that we use to label kinds of speech we think are unpleasant or or inappropriate, but you know what's categorized as hate, as hate speech is typically fully protected by the First Amendment. That said, it doesn't mean that you should say those things, right? I mean, the fact that you can say something constitutionally and that the government can't stop you from saying it doesn't mean that that's an appropriate thing to do or that you should say those things. And if you're the kind of person who's saying things that makes minorities and other underrepresented people feel uncomfortable or unwanted, you're a jerk and you should stop. There was a point you made earlier where you said um, you have to try to find a way to allow people to speak up, but in a way that's respectful. And you just kind of touched on that now. So I want to ask you, and this is maybe a million dollar question, but how do you find that balance of letting people speak, you know, and having these perhaps these First Amendment uh, supporters feel like, okay, we're saying what we want, but then at the same time, have it to where... I guess there's still a line of respect. How, how do you sort of strike that balance, I guess, mm. is what I'm asking. Mm, mm. Well, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you really have to reach a place where people feel like they're freed from the burden of the law, right? In the sense that they know that they can say whatever's on their mind and whatever they think, but they also don't feel the urge to say things that are going to be hurtful or inappropriate. I don't think you can force people to be respectful. I don't think you can force people to have love in their hearts for other people. I think they have to get there themselves. And making them shut up is not going to change their minds about how they feel about other people, only forcing them to confront the kind of ugliness they have inside themselves is going to get them there, right? So at the end of the day, I, I think we have to accept that allowing people to speak their minds is better than suppressing the evil and ugly things that they want to say. At the very least, if they can and do say those things, we know where they're coming from and you know we know what we have to change. So what you're just saying is even if something may sound unpleasant or 
disrespectful. It's just about just hearing it because, you know, that's the First Amendment. They can say what they want, even if, like you said, it's hurtful or disrespectful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the law says quite clearly that the government can't stop people from speaking except in very, very limited circumstances. But again, just because you're allowed to say something or do something doesn't mean you should, right? And people who feel the urge to behave in ways that are unpleasant, to engage in speech that other people might feel is hate speech, right? To engage in activities that make other people feel uncomfortable or unwanted should really take a hard look at themselves and ask themselves why they feel the need to do that. How do you draw the line between hate speech that's acceptable and hate speech that shouldn't be mentioned? Because you did mention that there are some exceptional circumstances. Could you kind of touch on that? Right. Well, so there's there's very limited circumstances where the government is allowed to engage in in the regulation of speech, sometimes even the regulation of speech based on on content, uh, although they're very limited. Right. And they require the government effectively to show that what it's doing is regulating a kind of conduct that people are engaged in in a particular context that makes that conduct um, inappropriate or rather appropriate for the purpose of, of regulation, but not directed at the, you know, the, the, the viewpoint that that person has or what they're trying to say about the issue that they're discussing. In other words, the, for example, you know, the government can adopt what's no, what are known as time, place, and manner restrictions on different kinds of speech. In other words, the government can say, you know, Engaging in this kind of speech is protected by the First Amendment, and you know you are allowed to engage in the speech. You just can't do it at this place or at this time or in this particular way, right? So you know, like for example, you know you can engage in certain kinds of speech, but you can't stand up with a megaphone in class and start yelling at the teacher, right? That that, that that's a permissible yeah. regulation. The, your your speech is being regulated not because of what you're saying, but because of the fact that other people are in the class to learn and the teacher won't be able to teach if you're standing there with a megaphone yelling at them, right? So those kinds of regulations are fine. There's also limited regulation of what's known as obscene speech, uh, but that's very limited, right? The category of obscenity is all vanishingly small to non-existent today uh, in the context of like broadcasts like we're doing now. Obviously, there are some limitations on speech, specifically sort of quasi-obscene speech, like indecent and profane speech, is also regulated by the FCC, so you can use that kind of speech at certain hours of the day when, ideally, when children are not allowed, are not likely to be listening, but you can't use them at other times of the day, like right now, right? The Supreme Court in the past has said that kind of regulation is permissible, essentially because it's a form of time, place, and manner restriction. In other words, you're allowed to engage in that kind of speech. You're just not allowed to engage in that kind of speech when you're broadcasting over the airwaves. Uh, I, I question whether those regulations would survive a contemporary Supreme Court review. It's very hard for me to see how they would be, the specifically the FCC uh, indecency and profanity uh, regulations are consistent with the First Amendment as as currently interpreted. And specifically, recent trademark cases like Matal v. Tam and, and even more so uh, Yanku v. v. Brunetti, where the Supreme Court has held that similar kinds of regulations uh, on on speech in relation to trademark registration were First Amendment violations. I mean, it really seems to me that if it's a First Amendment right violation in relation to trademark registration, surely it's a First Amendment relation uh, violation in relation to broadcast speech, which 
at least in theory, ought to receive broader First Amendment protection than trademark reg registration, which is predominantly commercial speech, which gets less First Amendment protection. To move on to our next topic, WRFL Zach Epperson analyzes the most recent chapter in the free speech battle here in the state of Kentucky. The debate over free speech on campuses in the Commonwealth of Kentucky finally reached the state capitol in Frankfurt last legislative session. House Bill 254 calls for universities to adopt policies to protect both students' and faculty members' rights to freedom of speech and expression. Additionally, the new law ensured people do not, quote, substantially obstruct or otherwise substantially interfere with the freedom of others to express views they reject. At the University of Kentucky, Dr. Price emphasized that balancing the protection of student ideas and feelings with opposing viewpoints is a precarious one. There is a tension between uh, people wanting to not hear things that are uncomfortable, that that question their significance or value. And then we have the First Amendment right that says that I have a right to say what I want to say or express myself. The law was not without its criticism as both the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky or the ACLU and Democratic lawmakers including Lexington Senator Reggie Thomas opposed the then bill. For WRFL, I'm Zach Epperson. All right, the, Professor Fry, running out of time, so real quickly, I just want to ask you, how is this law different than what the Constitution already affords citizens? You kind of read my mind there, Mohammed. Um, it seems pretty redundant to me. A few of the provisions it contains may have some relevance, at least in relation to existing practice. I'm thinking in particular the limitation on the ability of the university to charge uh, student groups fees that reflect additional security costs and so on. I think, you know, I'm not sure that the courts have really signed off on that as being prohibited by the First Amendment. Um, but on the, on the large part, it really does seem like the law is mostly just a restatement of existing First Amendment doctrine. All right, and that's all the time we have for today. Professor Fry, thank you so much for joining us today. Come back next week as we will be breaking down the governor's race in Kentucky. Until then, I'm Muhammad Ahmad, and you've been listening to WRFL's Campus Voices. Have a good night. Thank you. <laughs>